Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com on which we talk to high achievers about their goals. This is season five of the podcast, and this season we're doing things a little bit differently and shaking them up, Um, but this week we are doing things even more shaken up and even more differently because we're in the middle uh, at the time of recording of our Sweat Working Summit. So we wanted to feature the audio of an incredible panel as well as the moderator and the force behind the panel, Natalie Villarule. Natalie, tell us who you are and about the panel. Yeah, so I'm Natalie. I am a triathlete, runner, member of Team USA, lover of great food and drinks, lizard mom, the list goes on. Uh, You know, one of those like jack of all trades kind of people that uh, has many interests and hobbies, Um, some that I do well, some maybe not so well, but that's life. Um, So as far as the panel, something that was really important to me which you know has been kind of a reoccurring theme is to really talk about the diversity that already exists in endurance sports and how we build on that to really bring more visibility to those athletes and how we bring more diverse athletes into a sport that is traditionally been very one note. Um, so when I was thinking about who I wanted for this panel, I kind of had like, I started with a list of of people that I thought would be great choices. And, and all of them were people that I know in some way, whether we're connected through Facebook or we've met in real life. And so I wanted to show diversity in a way that wasn't what people typically think of. So most of the time when, you know, somebody says, oh, we have, you know, a diversity issue, or this is what we want to work on. People either think of something that's racial or, you know, um, gender-based, like men versus women. And so I really wanted people to have a different perspective that wasn't based on those things specifically. So John, who was one of the first people who agreed to it, is an amazing athlete. He's done the Boston Marathon, and he is the first person with dwarfism to do an Ironman triathlon, which I myself haven't even done. So that's like, superhero status. And, uh, you know, like I remember at the time when it happened, seeing the, you know, the video on CNN and everything else. And I had friends who were cheering at the race and it just, you know, it felt like I was there even though I wasn't. And, you know, I'm not part of that community, but it just felt so empowering to see somebody be able to silence all of those folks who had their whole life told you like, no, you can't do this. You're not capable of it. You shouldn't do this. So to be able to, you know, not only it's, it's one thing when you have to kind of battle your own demons, but when you have people around you that are constantly giving you that negative energy and telling you, you can't do something to be able to overcome that and say, yeah, well, you know what? I did it. And I was the first one to do it. And now there's going to be more, um, to me was just really powerful. So John, like without a doubt, I knew I needed to have him on the panel and then, Khadijah was the next one who agreed. And Khadijah and I met, um, we're members of the Black Triathletes Association. We're also both members of Team USA. So that's how we met each other. We've raced together at this point several times. Um, so I've kind of seen firsthand some of the things that she's gone through. And she brought this up, you know, in the panel that when we did Ironman Ohio, which was a half iron, uh, her and I lined up together for the swim start. And when a swim for Ironman is not wetsuit legal, by Ironman rules, you can't have anything covering your arms and legs, but she's a Muslim athlete. And so for modesty, for religious purposes, 
covers her arms and legs. And she has to, at every single race, every single year, get a special, um, basically allowance from the, uh, from the officials for the race to say that she can race that way. And so when we were waiting, you know, to go in the water, you could tell that she had this anxiety about racing and whether or not somebody was going to try and disqualify her for wearing, you know, the, the special mate, she has like a custom made kit that she wears. And even some of the other athletes were kind of giving some looks like, why is she wearing that? That's not allowed. And an official, actually one of the officials did come up to her and she was so nervous. And I was too, like I could, it was a palpable and they came over and they're like, oh, I just wanted to welcome you to the race. You know, they knew her race number and everything. And that was amazing, but it's, not typically her experience, but being there with her, you know, it made me realize how much she has to go through. Like you already have race day jitters, but to on top of that, constantly wonder whether or not an official is going to try and DQ you. I really wanted to have her perspective, not only as a Muslim athlete, but also, you know, she's a mother of 10 kids to have like balance that she's black and she's Hispanic. She just has a really unique outlook and lived experience that I thought would be really valuable. And then the third panelist I met actually at another um, kind of like endurance event called Outspoken. And Erin is a trans athlete. And so her and I actually met during a panel about trans athletes specifically that Dr. McKinnon spoke on. And so kind of that experience really changed my perspective because I always was like, yeah, trans women are women. They should be you know, competing with all of us. I don't get what the big deal is. And then after hearing everything from Dr. McKinnon and Aaron and other people, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much worse than I thought it was. And there are things that I can do to help. And I wanted other people to realize that A, it's something that, you know, they should kind of have in the forefront and, and think about, and that there are things that people can do to make an impact and help trans, especially trans women advance in sport and even do basic things like work out at the gym and use the locker room afterwards. So all of those people, you know, in different ways, embody diversity and something that's not like what people's first thought is. So I really wanted to have something that took people kind of out of their comfort zone and, and really learn something. And it's so funny because after the panel, each one of them messaged me separately telling me how they had learned something during the panel. So I thought that was really amazing too, that even between those three athletes, they each, you know, Aaron messaged me saying like, oh, I had no idea that John had to, you know, like go through all this, get measured at a race to prove that he was a, a person with dwarfism, even though he's very clearly a person with dwarfism and just kind of all those experiences. So it, you know, that really to me was a moment where I realized like this was very impactful and people did learn a lot. So that's what I was hoping the big takeaway is that people would be inspired, obviously, because these three athletes are incredible, but also kind of take away some insights of like actionable things that they can do to, you know, go back into the world and say like, Hey, this is what I'm going to do to speak up for somebody or do something to help somebody. Incredible. And you also brought your own perspective to the panel as well um, as a triathlete and an athlete yourself. Um, how did that feel? You know, it's funny because I feel like I'm such a storyteller and I really had to pull back during the panel because I wanted my panelists to shine. I was like, 
this is their moment and I don't want to take over. So, you know, I would here and there kind of mention things about my own journey to, you know, show that I was kind of, you know, experienced similar things, but definitely wanted their stories to be the ones to come through. Cause if not, I could just talk all day about, you know, the experiences that I've had. Cause there's been so many times I've shown up to a race and because of my size as a plus size athlete, you know, people will say, Oh, you know, the 5k packet pickup is over there. And I'm like, I've run five marathons. Like I'm not, I didn't come here to run the 5k. Um, so, you know, it's like all of us that were on that panel have been judged by our outward appearance and solely by that, even though all of us are endurance athletes, we've all run marathons and, you know, had these really epic feats of athleticism and yet are constantly just judged by what we look like on the outside. Yeah. I think what I took away from it, and then I'll, I'll ask you about your big goals, but what I think what I took away from it was just the overarching theme that your assumption should be of ability. And if it's not, if it's not hurting you, leave it alone. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which feels like it should be a universal truth by now, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Natalie, this wouldn't be the We Got Goals podcast if we didn't ask you about your big goals. So tell us about a big goal that you set and accomplished, why it was important to you, and how you got there. So one of my biggest goals, um, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit during the panel, was uh, volunteering at the ITU Multi-Sport World Championships, which was here in Chicago. And it was random. Like I got an email that was like, hey, we need volunteers. And I was like, sure. I have free time. I'll come hang out and get a free pair of shoes for volunteering because that's how most of my adventures start. And so, you know, I went downtown every day and, and spoke to athletes and I was checking people in. And at the time I didn't even know that aquathlon was an event. I didn't know that was a thing. I thought there was either like triathlon, duathlon, or just singular events. And so to find out that that was the thing, which because spoiler alert, the bike is my least favorite of the three. So to find out that just a swim run event was a thing, I was like, I could do that. I can train and I can, I can qualify for team USA and I'm going to make it to a world championship. And so that's, that's what I did. I started training, you know, I was used to training swim, bike, run. So I kind of, I mean, I still did that for the triathlons I was doing, but I put a lot more effort and focus into my swimming and what it felt like to run after coming out of the water, which is a very different feeling. And, you know, um, there was definitely some bumps along the way because my first national championship, uh, which was going to be the qualifier for the first world championship, I actually had gotten laid off like just before. And so I had already booked my flight and everything that that national championship was in Texas Luckily, I have a friend who lives there, so I got to stay at her home, and um, she actually left her car keys for me because she was out of town. So, like, I was driving her car, living in her house, taking care of her dogs, um, and I, I competed in the national championship, and I placed well enough that I qualified for Team USA, and I was like, this is great, but how am I going to pay for any of this because I don't have a job, and it's really expensive. So, even... Once I did do the training and qualifying, the hardest part was getting from there to the world championship because it was like at every turn, something happened that held me back. So, you know, paying for, you have to pay for your uniform plus your parade kit because they do a parade of nations. And as age group athletes, like 
we don't have sponsorships like that. So we were paying for everything out of pocket. So I was like, okay, cool. This month I can save enough or, you know, do odd jobs or whatever side hustles to pay for this. And then the next month I'll pay for this part and then I'll save up this and this will go towards my flight. And this will be, you know, different things along the way. I finally got my uniform and I ordered the largest size they had, which was a 2X and it didn't fit. I actually, it took more work to try and get my body into the uniform than it was work to qualify for Team USA. Like that's, I mean, I was sweating. So I sent it to my mom to have some alterations done. She fixed it up for me, sent it back to me and the post office lost it. And so, oh my God, I was like, not expecting that. A week before the world championship, I'm literally in tears at the post office having a breakdown. I'm like, you don't understand. I have been working towards this for years. I finally qualified and I'm not going to be allowed to actually compete in the race. If I don't have a uniform, I need you to find this package. And I like, you know how people talk about going postal, literally me at the post office, just, I mean, ugly crying, losing my ever loving mind. I was like, you do not understand. And this woman who was like, I don't know, waiting for a package or something. She was like, it'll all work out. I was like, you don't understand how important this is to me. And I ended up just ordering a new uniform. It didn't have my name on it. And that was like one of my things I really wanted to be able to see my name on my uniform when I competed. And I was like, you know what? I just have to kind of roll with it. And this is, this is what it is now and just make the best of it. And so thankfully it came in like two days before my flight. And it, it, this time I ordered a different style of uniform and it did fit, even though it was like, if I farted, I may have busted a seam. (laughs) That's how tight it was to my body. It was like sausage casing tight. Um, but I was like, you know what? It is what it is. If it breaks on the course, that's fine. They can't, at least I can do it. So, I mean, it was a whole lot of obstacles and hurdles, even just besides the training to get there. But, you know, I did. And, uh, even the race itself, the water was filled with jellyfish, which I've never been stung by a jellyfish in my life, but I think every single jellyfish in Denmark got me that day. So it was like, the whole thing from start to finish was not at all what I expected because I was like, what, what else, what else can happen? Why is this so difficult? But when I finished, like there was nothing that could have taken away the feeling I had when I crossed that finish line. And I mean, my skin was like itchy and burning from all the jellyfish things. They got me in the face. I mean, it was, I was a mess, but I, I mean, I was on top of the world. It was incredible, even though the journey was definitely a little arduous at times. So I wouldn't believe it if I saw it myself. It's so ridiculous. Like the, it's, it's like, it's Homer's Odyssey, but like journey to the, to the triathlon. Like the things that you think are going to be the hardest, you're like, okay, I need to beat enough people to place high enough to make it to the team. That's what you think is going to be the hardest part. And that was literally the easiest part. Everything else was just rough, but you know, you, you just got to kind of keep on keeping on and, and hope for the best. And eventually the things kind of all fall into place. Even 
if not in the way that you had planned or imagined? Well, dear listener, this is going to help color your listening experience as you take in the panel uh, that Natalie moderated. So enjoy. We'll see you on the other side. Yeah, I said I'll be on the road. I'll be back. I'm just reaching for a goal. So don't be upset when I'm not around. Oh, welcome, welcome. As participants are flowing in, this is fun to watch. Uh, I'm Gina Anderson-Cohen. I'm the founder of A Sweat Life. I'm going to kick it over to Natalie to do introductions and to start the show. Natalie, take it away. So I'm Natalie Villarreal, she, her. I'm in A Sweat Life ambassador, so super excited to also get to be a part of this and moderate a panel. A little bit background on me. I am a triathlete, member of Team USA, all-around random, reluctant athlete that was taught that running was punishment and trying to, you know, find a, a balance of that in my life. So uh, the the panelists I've chosen are, are people that I know and have met and been inspired by through triathlon. So super excited to have some of my friends here. So I'm going to let them each kind of speak a little bit about themselves and about uh, their experience with triathlon is a nice little intro. So we'll go ahead and kick it off with Khadija. Hello, um, my name is Khadija Diggs. I am also a member of Team USA, and that's how I met uh, Natalie. I did my first triathlon as part of an initiative for my sorority, Gamma Gamma Chi Sorority Incorporated. Um, And I love to race. It's become my passion. It's become how I express myself as a Muslim woman and a mom. And I'm excited to be here tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. Aaron, if you want to go next. Hello, I'm Aaron Hamilton. Pronouns are she and her. Um, oh boy, first time. <laughs> Stage fright. <laughs> uh, I got into triathlon because uh, I had a recent or an accident about five years ago that wouldn't allow me to continue my professional amateur career in cycling, uh, and it gave me the it gave me the drive and mission to finish through my recovery and also become uh, an example to the trans community that we can race as well. So I've been doing that for about three years. Awesome. And then John, do you want to close us out with the intros? Uh, Sure. Uh, My name is John Young. He, his, him, uh, live up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, originally from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, the age of, I don't know, early 40s, I was extremely uh, not a really fit person, was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea. Um, luckily, kind of was prescribed a CPAP machine, started to sleep properly, got back into swimming, which I'd always done. And then I somebody sent me a video of Rick and Dick Hoyt doing an Ironman. And so in early 2009, I thought, hey, maybe that's something I could get interested in. And so I trained and did my first sprint triathlon, had never even run around a track at the age of 43 years old. And, um, and that got me hooked. And I've been racing ever since and kind of moved up in distances, um, um, you know, kind of the regular progression, Olympic distance, half Ironman. And then in 2016, I raced in Ironman Maryland uh, to become the first person with, with dwarfism to, to compete in an Ironman. And I've run the Boston and New York marathons a few times and it's kind of changed my life. And, and um, I don't see myself slowing down anytime soon. I hope. 
That's awesome. Um, which, speaking of, if Gina, you can play the video. John was featured on CNN, so we're going to play part of the video. Um, and I can put in Slack later the, the link to the full video. But if we could play that as a good little kind of setting the scene for the talk. The moment I wake up, part of me wishes that I could roll over and go back to sleep. But I've learned that, that to achieve the goals you want, you have to put in the work. This race is probably the biggest thing that I've ever prepared for. All my other racing has kind of been in preparation for this. John Young is training for his first Ironman triathlon. Being a little person, we grow up a lot with people telling us, you can't do that, you're too small. You can't do that, you're too short. I want to show that any other person who's short stature, if they want to do something bad enough, they can prepare and do it. The Ironman is a 2.4 mile open water swim, 112 mile bike ride, followed by a full marathon, 26.2 miles of running. No one with dwarfism has ever done a full Ironman, so I will be the first. It's been wonderful to watch him just kind of keep going and keep moving. I had no idea we would be in this place. I just wanted him to start being healthier. When I started teaching full-time, I kind of had gone away from being physically active. In 2006, I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea. When he asked me to step on the scale at four foot four, it said I weighed 195 pounds. It was kind of a bit of a shock. John slowly started getting in shape. In 2009, he did his first sprint triathlon. He was hooked. Soon he began training for longer and longer distances. And in 2015, he finished the Boston Marathon. It's, it's been a big motivation for me. When I was younger, I was a bit concerned about like, why am I always last and all that stuff. And then when he decided to do his first aqua bike, it kind of showed me that even dwarves can do many things that average size people can. My motto, my catchphrase, my hashtag is be the hammer. When I did the Boston 2014 marathon and I wasn't able to finish due to illness, I was upset. And Owen said to me, Dad, sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail. So that day I was the nail. Now it's my chance to be the hammer. I'm amazed at everything he's done, what he represents for our community. I'm beyond proud. I think crossing that finish line is, is obviously gonna be probably, like besides the birth of my son, It's, it's probably just going to be all those people that ever said, you can't do this, just going away. Whatever body you have, male, female, skinny, tall, you shouldn't be judged by that outward shell. And I think that's the message I hope that people take away. I'm really proud of what I did. I'm the first person with dwarfism to, to do a race, and I'm 50 years old. It was amazing, very special time. I'm feeling pretty good. All right. That also kind of helped explain for anybody who's not familiar with triathlon, 
also what an Ironman distance race is because all of these folks, minus myself, because I have not built up to that yet, are Ironman triathletes. So super amazing. They're all like superheroes to me. So kind of also want to go around to each one and talk about where you draw inspiration from and what really pushed you to not just get into triathlon, but to go long distance, because that's like a whole other beast all into itself to take on 140.6. So uh, we'll start with you, Khadija. Oh, wow. <laughs> I started racing long for, and I talk about this a lot, and even every time I talk about it, it's still hard. Um, my niece, it, it, a, a good friend of mine, we had been friends so long, his daughter was my niece. She died of brain cancer, uh, and I had just started doing triathlon. Uh, she lived with me for a while between, she went back and forth between my and my ex-husband's house. Her parents had moved back to Gambia. She flew back to the United States for treatment. And I always say this, that endurance athletes are sometimes, almost all of us are running from something or running to something. My training became my therapy. Um, and then less than a year later, I lost my father in a lot of pancreatic cancer. So that's what kind of took me into going going longer. And also one of the things that drove me to, to do a full Ironman, well, I had already signed up for it, but one of the things that made me determined to finish and, and finish with a good time was, I guess about a, a, two weeks before I did my first Ironman, uh, I made my first attempt at making a U.S. team and I passed out. So that was kind of, those are the two things. One that made me push so hard on my first one, but just to get me there and start doing more endurance sports, it was therapy. It was my way of being in motion and not thinking and not, just not having to feel for that period of time when I was on the bike or especially when I was swimming, I love to swim. And just that rush of the water and only being able to hear my breath and my heartbeat it just, there was something about it that was completely therapeutic. So, And I know, you know, in terms of like, for Aaron, we kind of talked about this before with, you know, because Khadija mentioned therapy and for you, it's kind of therapy in a different way, recovering from an injury. Um, and that's something that happens, you know, pretty often in the sport, especially, you know, with cycling being a major component that there's always that risk of injury, you know, whether it's a negligent driver or something else, you know. Um, so do you kind of want to talk about your journey with having a brain injury and kind of recovering and then building up to an Ironman? Yeah, sure. Um, so how I got, now that I'm calm, my nerves have calmed down, uh, how I got into triathlon is kind of unique. Um, I almost had kind of the ability of having to do physical activity taken away from me completely, uh, getting hit head on by an SUV while training on my bike for, uh, a cycling, uh, race stage race. Um, you know, so I suffered from a devastating traumatic brain injury. Um, so because of that injury, I wasn't able to continue my cycling career because the, the risk was too high of sustaining another blow to the head. And my doctors were telling me, that if I sustain another significant uh, head injury that I most likely won't wake up again. Um, so, you know, that dream of becoming like a professional cyclist was taken away and it took a lot of fighting um, to get to the point where I can even do anything 
um, and convincing my doctors that triathlon uh, was reduced risk compared to cycling because of the rules and everything with regards to the bike and not being able to group up in a Peloton. Um, so triathlon and uh, my first Ironman, Coeur d'Alene, in 2017 was kind of my beacon uh, through my rehab and recovery from that accident. And it was kind of the carrot on my stick because, you know, all of my doctors told me that you, this isn't something that you would be able to do uh, because of my brain injury um, and that I should aim lower for my goals. And with respect to that, and I understand that, you know, doctors are always more cautious than, you know, gung ho, but they finally, I finally got them to come around that this is something that I needed. So that was kind of like the driving force of going from not being able to, you know, walk, talk, or do anything to two years later, completing my first full Ironman uh, to kind of prove everybody wrong. On top of, you know, when I started training for that Ironman, coming out as a trans woman and starting my transition at the same time. So, <laughs> you know, I live my life as, you know, swing for the fences. So might as well do everything at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so that was kind of my carrot on the stick to get me standing and walking and doing what I needed to do again. That's awesome. I know John definitely knows about people telling him that there are things he can't do and uh, silencing those folks. So if John, you kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, Aaron touched on doctors and that I think was the big thing for me is, is before I got into triathlon, when Owen, our son was much younger, you know, he's a pretty active kid. And I remember going to little people of America conventions and having doctors say, you know, physical activity is really important, but avoid running. Running's not good for the back. It's not good for the lower spine because of some of the physical conditions we have with our dwarfism. There's some real concerns about lower spine issues. And so when I kind of got into triathlon and I found out that the running actually, uh, like it actually relieved some of the pain and discomfort I was having, I kind of went back to the doctors and I said, you know, but this, this is actually helping me. And they're like, oh, well, uh, that's just, it's, it's, it's just a fluke that it's working like that with you. I really would recommend that you don't tell other little people to run. And, you know, when I started getting onto social media, other people with dwarfism were kind of, you know, they're starting to do 5Ks and, and these color runs and all sorts of other activities and all, you know, and, and much younger than I am. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm 55 now. And so I started this in my late forties. And so for me, it was much more just to kind of silence those doctors who were kind of speaking from an area of not really a lot of understanding and just kind of guessing, I think, a lot of the times. And but but I have to also swing it the other way and say my own mother would, would like was telling me I was crazy for considering this because she thought I would get hurt. And and so it's the full gamut from people that really care about me kind of telling me to slow down and stop to people that were total strangers. And so, you know, when I first got into it, it was all for me. It really was. It was just, I want to get healthy. I want to feel better. I want to lose some weight and and I'm enjoying this and I'm finding the community of triathletes to be amazing people. And, and so I kind of stuck to it. And, and, and so the other part of it about showing other people that, you know, it, you can do anything is in my 
mind is just kind of the bonus to to kind of what I've been doing. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of kind of showing people the, the other side of that is also representation and kind of like what it means for you guys. Because I know for me, a big part of like me making it to Team USA was that I volunteered at the world championship when it was here in Chicago. And I was checking in all the international athletes that spoke Spanish. And I was like, these are like regular everyday people. I could be on Team USA. I could do that. I could train and I could make that happen. But it wasn't until I I saw it and was, you know, surrounded by that and realized like, oh, there's people with brown skin that speak Spanish and here they are competing, you know, in the international arena. So I know that for me was like a, a big eye-opening experience. So kind of for you guys, and we'll um, start with Khadija, but just kind of like what representation means for you and how it's important and kind of like what that looks like in terms of practice and whether it's everyday life or racing, um, you know, like, does it, does it involve more diversity in coaches, better training for race directors, access to resources? It's like, how do we kind of, you know, um, build that representation, but in a way that is equitable and not just like doing it as like what we call inspiration porn, where they're like, well, if this person does it, you have, you don't have any excuses. You can do it too, which isn't really moving the needle forward. So um, Khadija, I know that was kind of like a three-part question if you want to. <laughs> that was like a bajillion part question. <laughs> And, you know, it's funny as John talks about, you know, people telling him you can't do something because of this for different reasons. His story is my story. People would tell me, oh, you're never going to be able to race fast with all those clothes on. I remember after completing my first 70.3 and saying out loud, you know what? I think I'm fast enough to make the U.S. team at the long course distance. And somebody laughed. They laughed at me. And, you know, it hurt, but it also it also inspired me. Um, and when you talk about representation and you're checking people in and they speak Spanish and, you know, you see brown people, I think it is important. Um, I have, until I raced in Dubai, I had never raced with another Muslim woman. So for me to see another Muslim woman racing meant everything. I got a, um, an, an instant message yesterday. And it was a drawing from a little girl. And I didn't know what it was. And I just said, thank you. And then um, about an hour later, her mother belongs to this group softball team. Her mother posted the picture. Her daughter had done her black history, a little Muslim girl in Canada had done her black history project on me. She had never seen another Muslim triathlete. And it was the picture, a picture of me on her bike. Representation is everything. Sometimes you have to see somebody who looks like you doing something to say, you know what? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And it's, it's funny because I, I laughed with Natalie about this. I'm black, I'm Muslim, mm -hmm. and I'm Hispanic. So I have all these people telling me no for all of these different reasons. But sometimes we have to turn around and just tell ourselves yes. It's, 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 um, yeah, I would, you, your story tears me up, John, because it's funny. It's just, and, the, and then the fact I'm, I'm a mother of 10, I have three adopted children, three adopted children, seven biological children. And the fact that your son is inspired by you, that's gotta be the biggest thing ever. That's, that's gotta mean everything. And I think, I, um, I think, I, I think the best thing about that is that I've never told him or asked him to run. And now he's on the yeah. cross country team. 
and he's a little person. And I never had anyone like that when I was a kid. I never had someone like me. And now, like I said, Owen will get out there and he plays uh, ultimate Frisbee. He does cross country. Um, and, and that to me is I get all my joy just from watching him. Yeah. And there will be other kids behind him simply because they saw him. He saw you. And it mold, it's it's exponential. It's 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 absolutely exponential. And it, it just it's it's very important for us to see to see ourselves. And you're one of the people who saw yourself, who saw it before it, it existed. You need people like that to I, there was a I I I did, I always name my years of racing. One of the years was to see the unseen, to set up goals for myself that on paper I couldn't achieve. And some of those things are that we have to do that. We have to see what never existed for ourselves so that others can. Yeah. Yeah. And when you speak about race directors, that's very important as well. I know, uh, and you were there with me in, at Ohio. Yeah. Um, I often have issues. I've been, I've had people physically grab me and try to pull me off of race courses because of my kits, even after they were fully ITU and uh, USAT approved. At Ironman Ohio, the race director walked up to me, mm-hmm. are you number 143? Yes, I am. He said, welcome to the race. And I, Natalie and I both kind of looked at each other like, wow, that was the first time that ever happened. And it was a great experience. I think people just being aware of and I hate to use this word, but for lack of a better word, what the normal athletes are. I'm, I race like everyone else. My kit is not giving me any advantage over anyone else. A trans athlete who says they're a woman, they're a woman. There shouldn't be any, director shouldn't have any issues with that. It is what it is. Yeah, if I, if I can add to that, um, it, is, it is quite shocking that... Um, race directors, as well as, you know, the volunteers at races. Um, And it should be the responsibility of the race director and the organizers of events to have a better knowledge with regards to gender identity and to never assume uh, one's gender. Because it's, I run into it so much where, you know, you, you just approach the register you know, for example, for me, I just re- approach the registration table and they just assume that I'm a male. doesn't matter like how big my boobs are or how long my hair is, or if I'm wearing makeup or anything like that, they just assume that I'm male. And, you know, it's not, they're not doing it out of hate or anything like that. They're just, they just don't know. You know, a lot of people don't, don't know what being trans is or what it's all about. Um, so it's like there's definitely education can be done better and not just assuming that, you know, the number of times that I've been marked with an M on my cap or on my calf is, you know, I can't even count. So, you know, like especially during this age, people should recognize the fact that it's not just male, female. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. John, do you have anything else you want to touch on for representation and kind of what that looks like or means for you? I, I, I want to I talk a little bit of, um, Khadija was mentioning about race directors. I've had most of the time, like really great experience with race directors, even at races that I've appeared at at the first time. 
But I do remember once at a smaller triathlon, there's a rule that when your bike is on the rack, one of the wheels has to touch the ground. Well, that's impossible for my bike when it's on the rack because of the size of the bike. And I remember I put it on the rack and I, I came around and um, one of the race director, one of the referees who was there was questioning my bike and was like concerned about the fact that it wasn't following the rules. And the race director just took them aside and like, they were like, seriously, are you really going to question this person? Um, and, you know, everything was forgotten, but it was the, it's the only time that I actually ever remember getting any kind of a hassle, even, you know, bordering on a hassle. Um, but, you know, I think for me, in terms of representation, I remember a real, I'm getting, I'm getting kind of choked up about it now because it always kind of comes back to me in the same way. When I was doing Ironman Maryland, um, you know, it was a, in 2016, the swim was canceled due to bad weather. Um, and, and we did the bike, the part of the bike course was flooded. The run course all got flooded. And so, you know, it, it was an amazing day, but all sorts of weird things were thrown our way. But I remember when I was about a mile from the finish, it was dark. It was nighttime, about 10, 15 in the evening. There weren't a lot of racers left on the course, but there were a lot of, you know, a number of us. My coach was there and and he had seen me at three or four different spots during the race. And he stopped me with about a mile to go. And, and we were just chatting for a second. And he said, whatever happens, John, you're only ever going to have one first Ironman. So, so whatever this finish line is to you, it has to be, you know, this is it. You'll never have another first one. And so I remember I, I, I kept on running and all I kept screaming at the top of my lungs for about a minute to two or three minutes was, watch me now, watch me now. And I was basically yelling at every person in my life who's ever said, you're too short to do that. You can't do that. You might get hurt. Be careful. You're not tall enough. And I was literally screaming it. And I just, I remembered feeling like, you know, that's, that that's it. Like, that's the reason why I guess, you know, one of the reasons I was, I was put here was to kind of, you know, show people that, like I said, in the video, tall, short, fat, thin, old, young, male, female, whatever, if you want to do it bad enough, you can do it. And, 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 you know, the fact that, 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 that um, I went back in 2017 and raced again, did the swim, did the bike, got to mile 16 of the run and had to stop just because mentally I wasn't ready to finish those last 10 miles. I don't care. I was there and, and I did it. And, you know, whatever I do from now on, you can't take that away from me. And I think that's the same for all of us. You can't take that away. Absolutely. Um, well, they're trying gonna... to take it away from us. <laughs> they're being very successful. <laughs> to kind of stick with you, John, if we can uh, kind of segue a little bit and talk about community and kind of like, you know, um, how do you find a community or how do you build that support to get you where you need to go, especially for somebody like you who was the first, you know, kind of what was that journey like mm -hmm. in, you know, finding people who could help you get to the finish line? Um, you know, you look at you look at an Ironman and the bike, I think, is probably the most crucial part is there aren't bicycles made for me. And so when I first started racing, I basically took a child's mountain bike, a girl's mountain bike, an aluminum frame, very heavy, had it adapted and raced with that. Um, but then, you know, in about 2014, 2015, I, I, I sent a tweet 
to seven different bike manufacturers and it was a public tweet and I'll, I, I tagged seven different manufacturers and I said, do you want to help me become the first little person to do an Ironman? And only one bike manufacturer responded to me. And that was seven cycles located here in Massachusetts. And they said, let's talk. And so they designed a frame for me, a carbon fiber uh, and titanium frame. Um, and it was going to cost, you know, a good chunk of money. And I was prepared to do some fundraising. And then, you know, when I kind of posted online that the bike was being made and, and things were in the works and how exciting this was, I got a private message from a, a lady who reached out to me who I'd never met before. And she, you know, she was talking to me about it and how excited she was. And she said, oh, I have a niece who has dwarfism and she's married and has some children. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of I know some of the things that you've had to go through in your life. And she said, how are you going to pay for your bike? And I said, well, we were going to do some fundraising. And she just said, well, the fundraising is done. My husband and I are paying for your bike. And so they just paid. They basically just said, whatever it costs, let us know. And I remember saying to her, I, I can't accept this gift. Like this is my mother would never let me do this. This is too much. I, I can't. And she said to me, I have to be very honest with you, John. She said, the bike is not for you. The bike is for every person with dwarfism that sees you do what you're going to do. They need to see it. That bike is for them. You just use it. And I was like, I said, okay. And so, you know, that was, that was a, a, a really important part of the journey. Getting a custom-made wetsuit was another thing, you know. So Blue 70 reached out and said, we'd like to make you a wetsuit. And they helped design a wetsuit for me. So all of these things, um, you know, there, it's it's important and, and and like I said, a lot of it is just not asking and just hoping that people are going to hear. But sometimes you do have to ask, and it's you know sometimes they say no, and and sometimes they say no, but I'll help, and and we'll figure it out as we go. But that those two people, I think, were those two people were kind of crucial in helping me in my journey. Mike, trying to hold it together during all these stories, even though like I know these stories, I still like. It's really powerful to kind of have everybody talking together. Um, and Khadija, like you right now doing amazing things with DISC and, you know, building your own community of athletes. So if you can kind of touch on like what, you know, your approach of, of building your own community for those kind of coming behind you. So if you can kind of tell folks about that project. Yeah. One of the things, um, what John is saying is so true. Um, I belong to an organization called the Black Triathletes Association, BTA. But even within BTA, there weren't other Muslim women, maybe one or two other Muslim women. Um, and so within that community, it was still, I was kind of on the outer edges. But I do remember uh, when I qualified for um, 70.3 World Championships in South Africa, I wasn't going to go because I couldn't afford it. And they paid for my airline ticket to go. Um, so I understand um, how that feels to have somebody want something so much for you. I've had so much, um, so many opportunities that I've been offered. Uh, people have helped me for absolutely no reason at all. My mentor, um, Coach Alanga Fandway, uh, I remember I was training for Ironman Arizona and he would come out to the lake every weekend with his kayak. Everybody else had finished their races for the year. He came out solely to support me. So I completely understand. So DISC is a program. It's called the Diversity Infusion Syndicate. And of course, diversity is very popular right now. And so people are posting pictures and, you know, 
having campaigns, but I wanted to do something that was active and tangible. So what I decided to do was to take all of the things that I'd learned over the years, um, all of the products and sponsors that I'd worked with over the years, all the coaches who had helped me for absolutely no reason. I pulled them together and said, hey, look, um, and I also went out and got my my USAT coaching certification. So all this was in preparation for this. I said, I want to coach three Muslim women if I can find them and make them triathletes. And they kind of looked at me like, Khadija, okay, we know you're crazy. You do this kind of stuff. So um, in December, I put out an application process. I said, I'm looking for Muslim women and women of color. If you want to be coached by a world-class team, um, have an opportunity to receive all the products that I receive from my sponsors, um, and you're willing to put in some work because they're not paying for the coaching, but I have put in the caveat that we are doing community service projects over the course of the year. And I call them the class of 2021. And just like when you graduate from high school or college, you come back and you have that reunion and you help the classes behind you. That's I've, I clearly stated that's what I expect of these young ladies. So we were going to do three. Um, I was absolutely thrilled at the applicant pool that uh, we received. And we actually selected four women. There's only one young lady who's a Muslim. Um, the other uh, uh, three of them are uh, African-American women, but they're all hugely diverse. And that's one of the things we talked about. But um, Natalie, they're all African-American women, but they're all very different. One is Muslim. One was born in uh, Jamaica. One, she is uh, the parents of Nigerian immigrants. And one young lady, she was just, you know, she was born and raised right here in the United States. And then we laughed about it as I talked about myself. I mean, um, my father is Cuban. My mother's from North Carolina. I'm Muslim. I was married to a guy from Gambia. We're not monolithic in, in, in who we are. And I think it's, it's in one, it's important to recognize that. And two, I think it's important to, if we want to see diversity, we have to be active change agents in creating that diversity and do it within the sphere of our influence. Um, I'm not a rich woman. This is what I have to offer. I had myself to offer. So I engaged other people and I said, I'm offering my skills and the the, the associations that I have, and I'm going to teach these women, will you help me? And they, they, they joined in and I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. They had their first uh, yoga session uh, with the yoga instructor who's going to help them through this journey, Christy Fenner, today. So I was doing a little bit of yoga before I came in today. And um, I'll be sharing their journey over the, and hopefully it'll grow exponentially. Hopefully all of them, if not just one of them, will do the same thing for somebody else. So yeah, I talked that, a lot. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. That each one teach one. When you're the first, then you got to keep bringing everybody yes. else. Yes. So if you're the first and you're the last, you've done nothing. Yep. Um, so we're gonna kind of switch gears a little bit because um, this is something that like really has been an interesting experience, and that's kind of when it comes to different barriers to sport. Because I know like one of the things we always talk about is is gear, like for instance, and Khadija and I kind of gone through this with Team USA kits that like the largest size it went up to was a 2X. And so like 
when I tried my kit on, I was afraid if I farted, I would bust a seam. Like it was <laughs> tight to my body. And I was like, how is 2X the largest size that you have? Like uh, there are larger athletes than a 2X. And I know Khadija had to have a custom, you know, kit made to follow her guidelines. And it's so, you know, even when it comes to everyday apparel, you know, cycling shorts, for instance, are based on men's anatomy. So it's like they turn them pink and they're like, cool, now women can use them. And we were like, but hey, not really. Like, so there's a lot of different things that, you know, um, whether it's it's gear or training or different things like that, there can be a lot of barriers to sport. So I was hoping, Aaron, if you can kind of touch on like some of the experiences you had. Um, I know like, because I, I read your blog, so like definitely kind of your experience with like, you know, going to the gym and the locker rooms and things like that. So just kind of like things that have been a barrier for, you know, sport in general or triathlon for you. Yeah. Uh, it's been, God, it feels like it's just been barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier. Um, and it's a lot harder, you know, the earlier you are in transition, obviously, you know, the further you are in transition, it does get a little bit easier, <laughs> but you know, I've had a lot of barriers spe specifically with like locker rooms. Um, that's been probably the biggest I've been yelled at in locker rooms. I've been followed out of, you know, these are all uh, female locker rooms. You know, I've been pointed out, yelled at in the women's locker room. I've been followed out of the women's locker room and confronted in the parking lot for being in there. I've been kicked out of a handful <laughs> of locker rooms because I was making people uncomfortable. Um, and to give a little background specifically with locker rooms, because that's always the very, that's the touchiest subject. Um, I'm probably the most respectful person in the locker room, probably more so than the cis women that are in there. Um, you know, when I go into the locker room, I'm not just going to go in there and pull my pants down and tell everybody to deal with it. No, uh, that's not the type of person that I am. Uh, I try to respect everybody's feelings and comfort level. So for, for the first two years, you know, whenever I was in that locker room, I would take all of my stuff into the cramped, very small, very cramped, you know, personal showers, stalls and get dressed you know, either undress or get dressed, do what I need to do in the private privacy of that tiny little space. Um, and the only time that I would be out in the general areas, either putting stuff in the locker room or in the lockers or kind of relaxing. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not whipping everything out. <laughs> um, but even, even being as respectful as I could in the locker rooms, that's, it always seems like that's never enough. Um, and it doesn't matter how many surgeries you are, you have, um, it doesn't get better and it doesn't get easier. Um, with regards to like racing and stuff like that. Um, well, if anybody who's followed me on social media or, you know, with live feisty or places like that, um, you're aware of my stance and, um, with Ironman as an entity and organization with how they treat trans athletes, 
Um, I haven't been quiet about my disapproval with them at all. They probably, out of all of the sporting regulations, they probably have the biggest and worst barriers for trans athletes to overcome and get through. Um, pretty much every race that I go, that I went into the first two years, um, I had the potential of being disqualified because they wanted me to disclose to them that I was a trans woman uh, and keep in mind that this was only a requirement for trans women. It wasn't a requirement for trans men or non-binary people. Um, but, you know, if specifically with Iron Man, if you didn't disclose that you were a trans woman, uh, they will disqualify you on spot. Um, and of course, being the stubborn person that I am, uh, I refuse to tell them or to let them know and go through their terrible process <laughs> to be quote unquote approved to race in an Ironman. I just said, screw you. I'm not going to tell you anything because I'm an age grouper. I'm not going after money. I'm not going after podiums. I'm literally just there to finish the race. Uh, you don't need to have my entire medical history. <laughs> you know, you don't need my mental health records. Sorry, I'm not going to give them to you. If you want to disqualify me, disqualify me. I don't, you know, I'll, I'll still finish the race. It's not like you, you can try to pull me off, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so, you know, even local races, you know, that fear of being disqualified, you know, hung over my head every time because these are the rules. Uh, that we, unfortunately, even age groupers have to follow. You know, pro athletes, uh, I agree to an extent of what we need to, you know, what's required of trans women to do. Um, but I'm not a pro athlete. I'm an age grouper. I race to finish, not race to win. Um, and it's ridiculous. So, you know, it's it's really unfortunate that we're always kind of targeted in these and that, you know, people are going to extreme efforts to not allow us to race or compete or to do freaking anything <laughs> in this country. But I know we'll be going more into depth on that specific question later on, but yeah, it's my brain injury. My memory is already drifting. Already forgotten what the actual question was. <laughs> so I apologize. No, no, that was great. And My memory you, goes very yeah. quickly. <laughs> Khadija or John, if either of you have anything to kind of add to that in terms of, you know, experiences with barriers to sport or, um, you know, anything that you guys have kind of encountered? I, nothing. I think the one thing that, that I remember happening a few times is I would show up to a race and I have a handicap uh, accessible parking placard. And so I'll get to a race. And unfortunately, you go to a lot of the smaller races and all of the porta potties are in the parking lot where the handicap parking spaces are. They dump them right where the handicap spots are. And so I'll say, excuse me, is there a handicap parking area? And they're like, are, are you racing? And I said, yep. And they said, well, why do you need a handicap spot if you're racing? And I said, well, first thing is, would you say the same thing to a wheelchair athlete? Probably not. 
So I have a handicapped parking placard because I'm allowed to have one. And I've had this discussion with people going to the gym. Um, I'll park at, the, I'll go to the YMCA for a swim and I'll park in a handicapped spot and I'll be walking into the gym and someone will say, are you going into exercise? Yes. Why did you park in the handicapped spot? And I said, that spot's for people that are accessible. It doesn't mean you're lazy or not lazy. It has nothing to do with my physical fitness. It has to do with the fact that I'm allowed that placard by law because of a lot of reasons, not just because of how far I can walk, you know, and people don't think of the fact that, well, maybe those spots are closer to the building. So I don't have to walk by a whole bunch of cars that might run me over because they can't see me as they're backing up. Like people don't think. And and another part of me says, I don't want to explain it to you because it's none of your business. So just, you know, get out of my face. But, but that's probably the, you know, the one thing about handicapped parking that I kind of, you know, is the only kind of real hassle that I've had. I already talked a little bit about my bike. Uh, clothing is a, is a big, you know, is a big issue for me, but that's been like that for all of my clothing, not just my race clothing. So I have to get some things adapted. Um, you know, some things I can kind of, you know, even cycling shorts, for example, uh, I have to alter them because if I wear regular cycling shorts, they're usually past my knees and that's, you know, that's just not practical. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, cycling singlets easy cause there's no sleeves on it. You know, but a lot of stuff, like I said, uh, has to be adapted here or there. But, you know, I, I wear women's running shoes, women's sized running shoes. I tried running in boys shoes. I, I have a size five, which is about a women's six and a half or seven. But boys running shoes fall apart. They're not made to last and, and they're made to fall apart. So you have to buy them another pair. So, I, you know, I found I run in New Balance running shoes. They make a lot of wide sizes and I have wide feet. And so I'm, I've, I've really had a lot of good luck with with New Balance. Um, but that's kind of, you know, that's about it. But like I said, a lot of, a lot of it is just me not wanting to bother explaining it to a lot of people. Cause it's really, it's, you know, they just want to know the, the stuff. Yeah. It sounds like Ironman doesn't like to be nice to a lot of people. The three races where I was physically almost tried to be pulled off the line were all Ironman races. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the things that I, I was, that made me feel good though. I, the first time I was actually challenged at a race and officials physically tried to pull me off the line, the gentleman who was the announcer at that particular race, I saw him several years later at uh, Ironman Florida. And he said to me, he called me by name, which I thought was strange. He called me by my legal name. He didn't call me Khadija. So he knew, he knew who I was from my race records. And I looked at him, I said, you mean Khadija? He said, yeah. He said, I remember you from Ironman Raleigh. And he said, I was the race official who um, called you out at the athlete's briefing. I said, I know. As I looked at him, I was like, I know. And he said, I've been following your story. And he said, I apologize. And I, I see him every now. He's actually the announcer at Miami. He was at the announcer at Miami, man, this past year and the year oh, okay. before. Yeah. And um, I, I, every time I see him, I'm, yeah, I consider him to be, you know, a, a friend now because it takes a huge person to apologize. But Iron Man does have some they have some issues that I think that they they refuse to address, even with now having ITU and USAT approved kits. I shouldn't have to ask for permission every time I race. They know my kits are are ITU and USAT approved. I shouldn't have to 
I was happy about what happened at Ironman Ohio, but that shouldn't be how it happens. I want to show up to race just like everyone else. Yeah, uh, just to kind of add to that, Ironman's not all bad. It's oh no, <laughs> the, no, they uh, have some issues. The, the the corporate the corporation and the the policymakers are the ones that are bad uh, yeah. and need to be educated. Um, you know, so like one of my one of the biggest fears that I had going into my first Ironman in Coeur d'Alene. Um, you know, I was two years into transition at that time. Uh, was the the transition tents because they they separate the tents uh, by gender. You know, they yeah. have male tents and they have female tents. You know, local races, at least in my region, it was your transition tent was where your bike was in the transition, and that's where. You had to do all everything that you needed to do. So, you know, that was the biggest fear that I had because of the the risk of getting disqualified because I didn't disclose that I was a trans woman uh, was the tents. Um, but, you know, when, that's what's great about like the volunteers that are at Ironman. Um, they don't they don't know anything about the BS that, you know, the policymakers or yeah. the rules. They're just there to point point you into the direction and give you what you need to go you know so when i got out of the water and you know they told me to lay down and to rip off my wetsuit and i was like oh my uh, <laughs> you know they didn't even ba- they didn't even bat an eye they're just like the female tent is to the left you know they didn't say oh you, the male tent's over there go over in that direction they took my wetsuit off you know and also this was before I had bottom surgery. So it's like, you can't really hide what's down there in a cycling kit or a tri, tri uh, a tri kit, but they're just like female tent that way, go for it, you know, and got into yeah. the tent, had no issues. Nobody cared. Granted, everybody was exhausted and probably was just like, I'm dying. Uh, but, but nobody I can cared. tell you as, as just a woman who was born a woman, my first Ironman, I walked into the tent and, you know, everybody was half dressed. I was completely horrified. I was just yep. like, oh my God, everybody's naked. Yeah, I mean, so I, I just walked grabbed in there. I grabbed my cycling like, shirt and ran out yep. and just threw my bag. I didn't even well, know if it was yeah. the right place to put it. <laughs> I walked in there and I was like, well, there's some boobs. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Can I have some Gatorade, please? Because I'm dying. You know, that was my biggest fear uh, because I figured going into that tent was going to get me disqualified. Cause that was going to be the moment that they would see because yeah. you can't really hide the bulge. Thank goodness for race numbers do a really good job of covering that up. I know somebody asked me once, how do you handle the anxiety? For me, it's just that anxiety before I dive into the water. Is somebody going to say something to me? Is somebody going to try to stop me from diving in the water? How do you, how do you manage that? Because it's got to take energy from you for, for, for completing the race. How do you manage that? Actually, it's the activity itself that uh, helps. You know, So I get a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress at the beginning uh, uh-huh. because I'm standing there in a wetsuit and I look 100% guy mode in a wetsuit. Because, you know, mm-hmm. at that time I didn't have breast, a whole lot of breast growth or anything like that. So I just stood there looking like a guy with a pink cap on my head. Um, but as soon as I hit that water and, and as soon as I hit the bike and, or and as soon as I hit, you know, 
I'm so like in the zone and so physically exhausted that Mm -hmm. I don't have time to be anxious. (laughs) What, I mean, as soon as I entered that tent and nobody cared, yeah. Then I was just like, oh, cool. Well, I was all worried about nothing. Okay. Yeah. Go on my way. So, you know, that's, it's the activity that helps manage the, the anxiety. Cause I'm just like so focused and so exhausted that I don't care. I'm <laughs> um, so kind of to, to stay on that same thing with the, barriers and you guys brought up a lot of, you know, different things as far as it comes to Ironman. And this is something that two years ago we discussed with USAT as they were creating new rules, um, you know, in terms of like, who was at the table when USAT sat down to say, these are the regulations for sport. And so this kind of ties into Khadija and I often, we talk about, you know, what it means to be the token and like kind of that fine balance between representation and tokenization. Um, but I'm actually going to start with Aaron because uh, we were actually in the same room together with USAT when this came up. And Aaron asked, you know, who who do you have that you've been that speaking to while you're writing these rules about trans athletes? I said Chris Mosier. And so it's kind of like, cool, but trans athletes are not a monolith. So, you know, it's important to have other voices there. So, Aaron, you can kind of touch on that in terms of, you know, sort of the flip side of tokenization, which is like, kind of being excluded and there's only one person being the voice. Yeah. I mean, it's always unfortunate that these sporting regulations are making policies for a group, but they don't have any representation of the group uh, in the, in the policy making process. Um, Yeah. It seems like the go-to person for anything trans related is Chris. And I love Chris. He's an amazing guy and, you know, very knowledgeable and a a really good fighter for our cause, but, um, he's a trans man and trans men are treated dramatically different in sport compared to trans women. Um, I mean, you can see any social media posts or, you know, news article about a trans athlete, uh, a trans male athlete, like, winning a race or accomplishing this tremendous feat in athletics. And all you have to do is just look at the comments and you'll see everybody praising them and telling how courageous they are and how inspiring they are for accomplishing such a great feat, you know, and all this, but you take that same article and you replace that trans man with a trans woman and you look down at those comments you'll all you'll see is like it's just a girl with a dick uh they're stealing places from actual women unfair playing field you know you should die you know you don't deserve to be here you should be racing with men blah 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 i mean like the same article you can see the comic section and like it's different you know so he you know, Chris is obviously not going to have that experience. And also, you know, from like a transition standpoint and, you know, medication standpoint for, you know, HRT hormone replacement therapy is drastically different. You know, they take testosterone, 
we take, you know, progesterone and estrogen. Um, and also we have to jump through a lot of hoops. You know, our testosterone level has to be in a lower than the average cis woman level to be able to compete, um, and be able to prove that like not even random, like every season, like give us your blood work. So we know what's going on, you know, at a point, some sporting regulations required trans women to have bottom surgery, uh, to be able to compete like the Olympics that used to be their, uh, requirement to compete in the Olympics is to go through bottom surgery. Um, and then that trickled down, you know, a lot of the policies that are put in place, um, is a lot of these sporting regulations look at what the Olympics are doing and then they just copy that. So at a time they were doing horrible things. So everybody's did the horrible things and then they started to change and wake up. Um, but like, even, even with Chris, when they're, you know, USAT or USA cycling or Ironman are making these policies, he's not in the room helping them create these policies. They're writing the policies and they're just consulting his time being like, Hey, we've written, we've created everything here. Read this, provide input. You know, he's not involved or trans, no trans woman is ever involved, uh, in the actual creating process of these policies to make sure that they're fair. Um, it's always after the fact. And as you know, when people have something already written, even if it's in draft form, uh, they're not going to change it. <laughs> you know, Chris evaluated Iron, you know, Iron Man's trans policy and gave his input. I evaluate, I read through their draft of their policy and ripped it apart. And yet when they finally made it official, they made zero changes. Wow. So like nothing's going to change unless we're represented in the room that make the policy itself, not after the fact. And yeah, and Chris is not the only trans person <laughs> in sports. He's definitely not the only trans pro athlete uh, around. You know, obviously we don't have that trans pro athlete in triathlon, not yet at least, um, but there's plenty of trans women that are pro athletes and compete at a very high level and they never get brought into anything. They never get consulted to. It's just Chris. And, you know, it's really frustrating because he only has one side of the story, one side of the coin and doesn't really have the real world experience of the other side of the coin. Yeah. Yeah. In, um, in 2012, I, I, one of my favorite races to compete in is the New York City Triathlon. I love that race. I've done it every year, except for the last two that they've canceled because of the heat and then because of COVID. But in 2012, they introduced the field for physically challenged athletes. And they actually had written in the ITU rules a classification for dwarfism. And so I was all excited oh, that wow. I was going to for once be able to race as a physically challenged athlete in a category for people with dwarfism. So I find this rule and I look it up and it says 
the maximum height for somebody with dwarfism to compete in that category is four foot two. The thing is, that's lower than the average height for somebody with my type of dwarfism. I was two inches too tall. So I literally was competing in a race with genetic dwarfism and was being told I was too tall to race as somebody with dwarfism. So they, they called me into the, into the room in New York City for the classification team. And they said, okay, we have to measure your height. And I said, I already told you how tall I am. I'm four foot four. Okay, well, we have to make this official. So they measured me and they said, yes, you're too tall. And I said, I told you I was too tall. So they told me I couldn't race as a physically challenged athlete in a race where I was going to be the only one with dwarfism racing anyway. So I had to race as an age grouper. And so, and they've since removed the category at all. So it's totally gone. They don't even have it as a classification anymore. So if I want to race as a physically challenged athlete, I have to race in the open category. So I'm, I'm not ever eligible for anything for prizes. And that's fine. I'm, like I said, I'm never in it for the money. Um, um, so that's, you know, but I mean, to literally, I, like I was almost, I wasn't embarrassed because I was literally laughing at them as they were asking me to, 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 you know, to measure how tall I was in this, in, in a hotel in New York City, just for, you know, to put on. And so I said to them, where did you get your information? Where, who gave you that height of four foot two? And they couldn't tell me. And I said, well, who is it? Like, and, and I'm sure some buddy who knows nothing just picked it as a random height. There's like, they, they couldn't have even looked it up anywhere because that's, that's not a number that's anywhere. And the weirdest part is the legal height for being somebody with dwarfism is four foot 10. So they were eight inches off of the maximum height telling me that I was too tall. So I think, you know, what Aaron is talking about, it's that they're just not getting the people in the room that know the information. They're just kind of making up things as they go along, hoping that they're right. Yeah. And, you know, it also goes, you know, because there's been a few people, um, a few cis women, uh, you know, that have been caught with higher levels of testosterone. And what, is, what does cis mean? And you've used that term. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm, ignorant. Oh, no I'm asking. <laughs> I'm asking because I need to know, too. It means that uh, you're you were biologic, biologically a woman. Oh, okay. You were born female. Uh, OK, so it's I don't know. I can't remember what the cis stands for, but that's mm -hmm. kind of how you uh, identify someone who's biologically female. Okay. Um, you know, so like there's been instances in, in sports where cis women have, you know, been tested or been caught with higher levels of testosterone and, you know, and been proven that they're naturally producing higher levels of testosterone. Um, but then, you know, these sporting regulations are saying, well, you need to take a testosterone blocker to bring you into the, the average levels that are required, uh, for a woman to compete. And wow, you know, a lot of people got pissed off about that. Like they, sh they were saying that they shouldn't have to test or reduce their levels of testosterone because they naturally produce a higher level than your average woman. Um, and that kind of opens up the can of worms of, okay, if this person doesn't have to do it, then why do we have to do it? Cause we naturally produce X, you know, 
testosterone at a higher level than your average competitor in that race. You know, so it starts these these gray areas of requirements of like, okay, cisgendered women don't have to follow these rules, but we do. Um, And that's not me saying that we should be able to compete without blocking any level of testosterone. I, I'm very, I, you know, we definitely need to reduce our level of testosterone that is required, but everybody should be able to, everybody should have to adhere to that rule, regardless if you naturally produce it or not. Um, so like it's quickly becoming these, uh, these issues are coming up with on both sides of the fence that are starting to challenge these rules and nobody really knows what to do because, you know, they're not talking to trans people and they're not talking to women. So it's just a bunch of guys making rules (laughs) for, you know, for things that they don't understand. So it's just a mess. Yeah, because it kind of dives into a bigger conversation of, you know, certain people biologically have certain advantages, you know, whether it's, you know, Michael Phelps, who has an abnormally high threshold for lactic acid, like, and also he's just like, was basically built like a fish. So, you know, his, his body has, his arms are too long. (laughs) Right. But I mean, you know, he, he was born outside of what would be considered like the norm and has advantages physically that allows him to, you know, be the tremendous athlete that he is. And those things are allowed. Um, And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's an interesting conversation of where we draw that line of this is an acceptable you know, biological advantage, but this isn't. Right. And typically those policies tend to affect women far more than men. And specifically, especially when we talk about the higher testosterone levels, that was Kester Semenya and some other athletes, which were women of color. So, you know, it's even when those things are enforced, it's typically very specific to what groups of people those things are, you know, enforced on, which is a lot of times or most of the time going to be trans women or women of color. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want, I don't want what my comments to come off as that uh, I was against her or them uh, because of the, their, you know, increased levels of testosterone. Um, No, I think what happened to them was, you know, inappropriate, unfair, untreated. It's just more of how they handled the rules and, you know, this overpour, you know, overwhelming of like, they shouldn't have to do that. That kind of just like, okay, what makes them special and us not type of situation. So I'm still pro that person as just more of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So we have a a few minutes left before we'll open it up to question and answer. So I just kind of have one final closing thing for each of you guys um, to just kind of like if there's a main takeaway that you'd like for people to be mindful of how they themselves can use their privilege in order to help other communities, you know, whether it's in triathlon or or kind of everyday life. Um, So what is something, you know, whether it's small or large actionable items that they can kind of do to make sport more inclusive? 
Um, or, you know, if, if you don't have anything, maybe like what you hope people take away and, and can be inspired by with you as an athlete. So, um, we'll start with Khadija. One of the things I, I, I always say is that we're more the same than different. Um, to be inclusive, I think, is just to welcome that person where they are. Um, love me for the good things about me. Let me know about the things I'm a jerk about, just like you would anybody else. And know that I'm an athlete just like anybody else. One of the things that I hated when I first started racing, and I think it's the thing that made me more competitive. I have a really competitive side anyway. But I noticed that people saw me as, oh, it's so nice. The little Muslim girls come in a race. Oh, no, I'm coming here to win. How do you like that? You know, see me as an athlete just like anybody else. It could chastise me for the things that are bad about me and love me for the things that are that are good about me. And I think that's that's the one takeaway that I have. See me as a human being first. This is the skin that we're in. It's just the packaging. We all have a soul. Yeah. Erin, do you have any kind of final takeaways or things that you'd like people to do or take into their everyday life? Yeah, I mean you know, who we are, you know, and how we want to live our life isn't affecting your world. You know, we're just wanting the same basic rights that everybody else gets uh, and gets to enjoy. You know, we're not, we're not becoming trans women to steal podiums away from you. We're not becoming trans women to steal, uh, prize money from you or gold medals or anything. We're not making this decision and we're not making this life changing decision and do it. You know, we're doing this to become who we are on the inside. We're doing this to match our outside appearance with who we, you know, who we are on the inside. You know, that's, that's what we're doing. We just want to live our life. Um, and, you know, we're not doing this to get a competitive advantage. Like, I mean, after transitioning and, you know, five years into transitioning on hormones, I'm just, you know, I actually lost competitiveness. You know, I'm not, I don't ride my bike as fast as I used to before transitioning. We're not here to steal things. And we can hear your whispers you know, we can hear what you're saying under your breath. We can see your looks. You're not hiding, you know, you're not hiding anything. We can see it and it's affecting us. And, you know, we, we treat it as personal, personally being attacked. Um, if you see a trans woman in the locker room, who cares? Just let them do their thing. They're not, they're not in there to catch a look you know, at some naked women. No, we just want to get our business done. You know, there's plenty of other cis women that are checking out other cis women in the locker room regardless. I mean, like, we've all seen penises. We've all seen vaginas. You know, if you see a trans woman in there, let them just leave them alone. Who cares? You know, and if you see someone getting attacked or verbally assaulted or any type of assault, either in the locker room at a race, uh, you know, in social media, you see this onslaught of hate, 
help them, you know, give them support. Don't just sit there and look and not do anything, you know, stand up and help them because nobody should have to deal with that. Even before that, um, you know, before it even gets to that point, which is something that was one of the takeaways I had when I was reading through one of your blog posts that is something super simple and I had never thought of. So I'm definitely guilty of this, of like not thinking outside myself, but it's even, you know, going to your gym and asking what their policies are in terms of trans members, you know, ask them what would happen, you know, so that you can be somebody speaking up and using your voice for somebody else, which is like such an easy thing to do. And yet we don't think to do it. So yeah, I I could definitely throw some links into chat that uh, provides resources and stuff about like various laws, state laws with regards to like uh, restrooms, locker rooms and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, thank you for reminding me because I don't remember any of those blog posts that I write. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, take the initiative and go to your gym and ask them, hey, do you have a policy for this? And it doesn't matter if you're not trans or don't know anybody who's trans, but maybe somebody in that gym is, and, you know, they might need help or they're too afraid to ask the gym. Uh, I go into the gym and I always ask them what their trans policy is because uh, I don't want to deal with nonsense. Um, so, yeah, you know, go into your gym, ask them what it is. You know, if they do, then go on social media and say, this gym is a safe place for the trans community. I, I re- highly recommend it because they need to know where to go. That's make allows them to feel safe. You know, if the gym doesn't have a policy, then help them. You know, I'll provide links that you, everybody that is here today that can go and learn uh, and pass on the information as well. Awesome. And then John, do you have any kind of final closing thoughts, takeaways? The one thing that I want to kind of mention that we didn't really get a chance to touch on, and that was the idea of of inspiration. And I really think that like inspiration is a two-sided coin in the fact that like when I got into this racing, I, I did it, I was doing it totally for me. And what I felt at the beginning were a lot of total strangers saying things to me like, oh, wow, you're awesome. You're amazing. And I, I really want to warn people to be careful with those kind of statements when you don't know the person, because they can really come across as being really shallow praise because all you're doing is judging that person on the, on their body, on their outside shell. And you're looking at maybe me with, you know, four foot four, 160 pounds thinking, what the hell are you doing running a marathon? Like that's like nobody like you should do it. So I'm going to say way to go. But if you know my story and you know a little bit more about me, about got me here, the fact that I'm, you know, a father, a teacher, over 50 years old, not very healthy a few years ago, and I've kind of changed my life. That's the important part that I want you to know about. Don't just look at my body and say, because of that body, what you're doing is amazing. But the other side of the coin is I get emails and messages from from either other people with dwarfism that are adults or from parents of young children with dwarfism. And those kinds of things I can't get enough of because like I said, when I was their age, I had nobody. There was nobody with any kind of you know, physical idea about doing any kind of racing or swimming or cycling or anything um, that had dwarfism. And so I didn't have anyone to aspire to. So I was the football manager. I was the you know cheer crew. I was all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I became a much older adult that I got into this. 
And so when I get letters from people like that, that, that inspired me to kind of keep doing what I'm doing. So that part of it, I think is great. But if you see somebody that looks a little different from you, they might be an amputee, they might be visually impaired, they might have a traumatic brain injury, whatever. Don't just like the first thing out of your mouth shouldn't be, you're awesome, you're amazing. Get to know them first before you start doing that kind of praise, because I think that story, they want, you know, they want to maybe share that with you. And when you get to know a little bit more about them, I think that's kind of where you go from. Awesome. Thank you so much. I also, I also want to say, cause, um, this usually happens a lot with these types of panels, you know, you know, from the last summit that we were at, um, with regards to asking questions about trans related topics. Um, don't be afraid to ask any question. Uh, you know, I don't get offended very easily. Um, I have asked a lot. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, I know there's a lot of questions regarding that uh, and people are just sometimes afraid to ask because they don't want to come off as um, insensitive or, you know, possibly hateful or anything like that. But, you know, you know, don't worry about that. Ask the questions that you want to ask because knowledge is power and, all, you know, and learning is important. So I wanted to get that up front because of the last, you know, the last panel that um, I was a part of, you know, that was strictly nothing but trans topics. There were like no questions. And I'm like, I know there's questions out there. You're just afraid to ask. So don't worry about, you know, hurting my feelings or anything. (laughs) I learned a lot just listening to you talk. I've never... I've never, the topic has just never come up with me, but um, other than the Castro Semenya issue, I, I didn't, I mean, I know it happens, but I just, the indignities and then John have to get measured. Really? I just, I, I just, um, it, it, and I think listening to other people's stories, it makes, makes the issues that I've had, you know, seem small. Uh, they're really, all equal size. Yeah, I just, I mean, they're different. It just, it, it gives you perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just um, applaud both of you. But yeah, just yeah. ask, ask anything. Ask, yeah, ask. and I have to admit, I'm, I'm completely yeah. ignorant. So just listening, listening to the issues and things like that is, it's, um, it's eye-opening. Definitely eye-opening. Gina, I don't know if we have any questions. I haven't been keeping up with the chat. Do you have? Want to ask a few questions from the chat, Gina, if you're here? Yes, I am here, and I have you. I have you covered. Um, the, actually, the first question is for you, Natalie. Um, this is from Sarah. She said, Natalie, you touched base on finding clothes to fit. Do you have other experiences in the fitness world that are based negatively on your side? Just curious. I'm a plus-size blogger. Yeah, so definitely uh, triathlon clothing does not follow sizing of regular everyday clothing. So what would be like, you know, uh, average clothing, if you're say like most of my shirts are either like large or extra large in triathlon, if I can fit into it, it's a two X and that's typically the largest size that companies go up to. So if you're larger than a triathlon two X, which is like a normal person, larger, extra large, good luck finding kits that fit because it can, I mean, now there's companies that are starting to be more size inclusive and, and make things, but it definitely, I mean, finding a wetsuit was awful. 
you know, uh, I had to get a shorty wetsuit that only goes to like the elbow and knee because the full length one, you know, in order to fit my body was super long in the arms and legs and, and wasn't very accommodating. So I've definitely had a lot of issues because triathlon clothing is based on professional triathletes and it's based on basically like a size extra small. And then they're like, cool, we'll add two inches to that for each next size. And by the time you get to a 2X, it's really just an extra small that's slightly larger rather than taking to account that a larger athlete is going to have different proportions to their body and need that kit to fit differently. Like they're not thinking like, I guess they just decided that fat people couldn't do sports. And so we didn't deserve to have clothing that fit well. So um, it's definitely an ongoing struggle in terms of just like being able to have the proper gear to wear to get out there. Yeah. And I'm going to be real. Women of color are shaped different. Um, I'm, I'm black and Caribbean and I'm all shoulders, rear end and quads. My waist is this big and my shoulders are big and I have a big butt. So the, a lot of the kids I'll have a wetsuit is tight on my, my, you know, my butt and my quads. I can barely get it over my quads. And then I have all this extra right here. And it's, it's, it's aggravating sometimes trying to get, you know, clothes that actually fit. We're not, we're not all built the same. Yeah. I even had struggles trying to find kits that fit. And, you know, I'm like the prime example of their shrink, you know, pink it and shrink it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't wear men's clothing. I don't wear men's kits or anything like that. And, you know, at that time, I still had male genitalia. So trying to find uh, shorts that, because obviously female short tri shorts are not designed for male genitalia to be there. So being able to find something that fit uh, was really difficult. (laughs) It was really hard because obviously they're not designed for it. So, you know, I definitely ran into those uh, issues also of trying to be able to find anything to kind of like work with things down there (laughs) and kind of, but also keeping things, you know, in place, you know, when I'm running or something like that. So they're not just like juggling around. Okay. This next question is for everybody. Um, uh, John, you already answered it, but I love your answer. And I think you'll probably want to answer it again aloud. Why not? Mentally, how have you felt on your hardest days and how have you felt on your best days? That question came from Aaron Herndon. Um, yeah, I wrote, I think I wrote an answer down and basically, you know, when you're on your, on your best days, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, I feel like I could just run forever or I feel like I could just get on that bike and I hit all the numbers that the coach says, you know, if I'm on my, on, on Zwift cycling away, I'm hitting all my power numbers and everything's terrific. And I get all the little check marks and all little stars. And unfortunately, I'm very competitive with myself. I'm not as competitive with others, though my wife and son will probably disagree when it comes to games of Uno and other stuff. But, <laughs> but, but on, you know, when I'm competing like that, I'm very, cause I learned a long time ago that when I'm in a race, I'm not going to be able to race with most average size people. And, and I, so I kind of get them out of my mind. So I kind of, you know, I, I feel great and I hit the numbers, but I think, you know, what I wrote in the answer, and I think this is really important is even when I'm in my worst day and I don't want to do anything in terms of physical activity, 
there has never been a day when I felt really crummy that I've done a workout and then not felt better. Like I've always felt better, no matter how, you know, like I said, I want to roll over and go back to sleep or I want to have another cup of coffee, whatever. Let's get out the door. Let's do it. And when I get back home, I always feel better. And so if you're feeling pretty low, I can't think of a better thing to do than to get moving. I definitely, for, for me, like if I'm having a really good day, I am unstoppable. I, in real life, I might not be, but in my mind, like I am Godzilla crushing the streets and nobody can stop me. And then on my worst days, I like try and I call it personal PRs. And so for me, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, today out on my run, I got to pet 11 dogs and that was a PR for me. Or just like silly, goofy things that kind of, you know, get my mind off of being in the pain cave or having too much on my mind, just giving myself that distraction of, you know, hey, like this weird thing happened with a goose and on the trail or whatever the case may be, just kind of find those moments that kind of like make you laugh. And you're like, okay, wasn't that bad. Glad I got this done. Like it's over. I can put it behind me now and kind of look forward to the next thing. Uh, for me, um, obviously when everything's going good, um, it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> when, obviously, you know, a lot of times when things are going good, you're not really thinking about it. You're just like, all right, that was another training day. Right. <laughs> you don't like, at least for me, it's like, well, I don't, I feel super accomplished because I had a good workout. I'm just like, I had a workout. Um, Obviously, during the challenging times and the hard times with training, um, I found that I kind of put my uh, piece of uh, inspirational text on, you know, those little Velo stickers that I put on the top bar on my bike um, that, you know, whenever things are getting hard um, and getting tough and I just feel like I want to quit, uh, I have my little motto uh, that I live my life by and that I stole from Iron Man to make it good. Um, I have anything as possible on to, on my bike's top bar. Uh, so whenever anything is hard or I want to quit, I just look down and I see that. Um, but also, you know, I have it tattooed on my forearm as well, which might be hard to see on camera um, as a constant reminder. Cause when I'm in my arrow bars, it, that tattoo is pretty much right in my face. So I don't have to like fully look down at my top, top bar on my bike to see, you know, all I, I'm already tucked in. So anything is possible is like right into my, right in my face throughout everything. That's not the swim. Um, and that helps give me some motivation to keep going. So that's what I do. I put encouraging words all over me <laughs> permanently. <laughs> I know for me, I I guess more so when it relates to races, I always try to race in honor of other people. And that's that always feels uplifting. Um, I know my best races, you know, I get out of the water feeling fresh. Um, everybody knows I love to bike and I even talk trash when I'm on the bike. I point at people and then just getting off getting off the bike knowing I had a good time and I'm ready to run. And those are, those are the best days. I, the last time I raced was, which was in a triathlon Havana. Uh, it felt like that. It was amazing. I was racing in, in, in honor of a friend, Don Davis Calhoun. And I literally 
felt like I had wings. I had trained really hard and I raced well. At my age, I, I had a personal best. Um, you know, some of my friends and family uh, in Cuba were there and, you know, they were cheering me on. And I, I literally, I felt, I felt like I had wings. I felt like total crap when I stopped, but th- during the race, I felt great. I know. But you did. You had Dawn's wings. Yes, I did. Yes, I did, girl. And I think my my worst experience, and I, the crazy thing is my worst experience, I crossed the line feeling like a superhero. I had overtrained that year. This was the year that I went to South Africa. It was a race I didn't expect. I had raced far too much. And by the time I got to Ironman, Arizona, I, I probably shouldn't have done that race. When I got off the bike, I had no idea how I was going to finish the marathon. And I just started running. Um, and I was cramping, I was vomiting. And I remember Tom Shear, he's the kilt guy I was telling you about. I said, Tom, I don't think I can make it. And he looked at his watch and he said, oh no, you, even if you walk, you have plenty of time. And he calls himself the 1659 pace group. And mind you, I'm vomiting, can barely walk. And I'm arguing this with, with this man. I am not the 1659 pace group. <laughs> But I finished. I have no idea how I finished the second half of that marathon. But when I crossed the line, I felt like a superhero. And some of my friends from um, uh, from F2C Nutrition were part of the, the support group when you cross the line. One of my teammates came up to me and said, no, I have her. She's my teammate. And I just felt they knew I was having a horrible day. But knowing that I had so many friends who were there for me to uplift me on my worst day, as far as racing is concerned, I've had personal bad days, but as far as racing is concerned, I, I felt like a superhero. I literally felt like a superhero because I had so much love. So, I mean, I think it can go, it can go both ways. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, I feel like I could feed you guys, you all questions forever. Um, Natalie, in the name of time, is there anything you want to say that to shut this down before we check out? Um, I just want to thank you guys. I know you're probably like, what are you talking about? What do you, you want me to be on a panel? Um, and it was really important for me to have people that I kind of had a personal connection with, you know, I didn't want to have this conversation with people who are experts or sharing data or any of that. Like I wanted it to be really personal. And I thank you guys so much for being vulnerable and sharing parts of yourself and being part of this conversation that I hope was really valuable to everybody listening. I know I really enjoyed this conversation and and being able to, to share these stories and, you know, um, hopefully people can gain some inspiration from it, not just in sport, but even their everyday life and how they can go forward and make a change. So Thank you guys. Like from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you so much. And I'm so thankful for you guys for, for being here. I, it really means the world to me. Thank you. Oh boy. Natalie, thank you for putting together a panel that will be hard to top. <laughs> um, we are so grateful at a sweat life for your partnership and for everyone's uh, agreement to do this today. Yeah, I said I'll be on the road. I'll be back. I'm just reaching for a goal. This has been another very special episode of We Got Goals and a SweatLife.com production. Thanks to Ryan Barayuga for the video production, to Ryan Deffitt for the sound production, to today's guest, 
Natalie Villarule, and to all of the panelists from Sweatworking Summit.